Well, there were some kid bags out there. If there are some kids with these bags, if you want to go ahead and grab those, I want to talk about them just real quick to help you. We are really focusing in on the Bible and why the Bible is so important. So one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit later is how the Bible is sweeter than honey. And so there's some candy in here to remind us of that. I want to encourage you parents, lean, or I'm sorry, kids, lean into your parents. When they say it's okay to open these, then that's when it's okay, all right? So lean into your parents on that. And then you'll notice a few things. One, there is a coloring page. Uh, One reminds us of the song that we sang earlier, the B-I-B-L-E. And then the other side, of course, with the Bible, just as a reminder, is super cool. Um, Parents, do you wish they made these for us? Like, my kids used to get frustrated because I'd always take theirs. I'm like, oh, you're not coloring this right. No, not really. I didn't do that. But but, uh, super cool. Kids, feel free. There are also some crayons in there for you. And then you'll notice there is this cool little page. I got it upside down here. Here we go. Um, There's this cool little page, and it will give you some opportunities to fill in the blanks on the scriptures so you can get your crayon and write in the answers to those blanks. And there'll be a time a little bit later where you'll see that scripture up on the walls so you'll have plenty of time to fill it in. You'll also notice that... Uh, on the sermon listening guide, there are some pictures, and on those pictures, I'll be saying these words. You can circle them. Some of them I'll say multiple times, so you can put a little line there. You're like, wow, Kenny said honey 300 times. Hopefully I don't, but you can write that in there. And then there is a funny word. See if you can find a really funny word on there. The word is mezuzah. Mezuzah is a Hebrew word. It means doorpost. And we're going to talk about why that is so important in just a few moments. So be ready. Now, there is one other thing, and I'm going to ask you kids for this to be the only time in the service that you do this. And parents, just so you know, if it's more than that, I'm going to encourage them to use this the whole ride home for you. So uh, just, just be aware of that. But if you want to go ahead and get this out on three, we're going to blow it really loud, okay? One, two... Three. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that'll, that'll get us ready for the new year for sure. And uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is how we want to marinate in Jesus this year and really embrace the Word of God. And so because that's true, I'm asking uh, my wife, Cindy, to come forward, and she's going to read the passage for today. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Miss Cindy, if you would come on up, and I apologize, I didn't check your microphone. Let me check that real quick. See if it's on. Oh, you're good to go. Well, 2020, dear friends, is almost over. <laughs> And that leads me into our scripture reading. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. Thank you, Miss Cindy. All right. Well, uh, when when I first came, our our uh, our team gave me a list of questions, and one of those questions was, "What is your favorite book?" Because they wanted to put it on the website and uh, among some other things in my bio, and and I was wrestling with it because there is my my heart answer, but I also didn't want it to be corny, and I didn't want like, "Oh, of course you'd say that because you're the pastor," and. Um, but it is the Bible. Like, the Bible is it's my favorite book, period. Um, some are like, yeah, because you're the Bible, of course you're going to say that. No, I, I say that because the Word of God transformed me. Like, I'm a pastor because of the Bible. It's not my favorite book because I'm a pastor. Uh, it's different. And I have found that the Word of God has answered so many questions and has, has been life-giving um, in many, many ways. One of, the, one of the things in the Old Testament talks about is writing these words of the law on the doorposts. And so to answer that, uh, the Israel would take this little tube, and in this little tube, they would write out uh, that scripture, that specific passage, they would write it out, and they would put it in the tube, and they'd put it on their doorposts. That tube is called a mezuzah. And they would go by. When they went out, they'd touch it, put it to their lips. When they'd come in, they'd touch it, put it to their lips. And the reason they did that is to remind them that, one, God is with them wherever they go. And two, that the word of God is sweeter than honey. It's good. God's word is good when they go out and when they come back in. That's an important piece. The Bible is very, very uh, important for many reasons. And it's good. And it's sweet to us. Um, in Jesus' day, they, they had 613 laws from the Torah, but they put up some boundaries. So in other words, it was like, we want to make sure that we don't break this law and overstep this boundary, so we're going to tighten things up. And these boundaries are going to be very tight. And in Jesus' day, they were very tight. In fact, one of the ways that that worked is, for example, one specific rabbi would say, you can't work on the Sabbath. Okay, that's a Torah law. But he put up his fence and he tightened it up really close. And this is what he said. So if you were to walk through, or if you were to spit on the ground, and you were to walk through that saliva, and your sandal drug against that saliva, you were guilty of plowing, which is work. And now, that sounds ridiculous to us, and that was kind of the burden that they were putting on people. But the reason they did is they, they wanted to make sure that they really didn't break it, so they made it, like, tough. They made it really hard. They brought the fences in close because they knew that the Bible was given to them for life. And so I wonder about for us, is the Bible given to us for life, and do we receive it that way? We're going to address a couple of things this morning. One of those things is, can we even trust it? What Cindy read is powerful, it's awesome, it's great, but if we can't trust it, we're, we're wasting our time. 
So we're going to talk about, can we trust it? Um, recently, it was brought to my attention about how many 18-year-olds, once they go into college, leave the church uh, once they're in college. Now, there are perhaps several reasons for that, but one of the things that became uh, uh, very evident and communicated from multiple different angles was how, once they go into a secular institution, the Bible really is not appreciated. And so they'll say things like, really? You believe that there was a guy who died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later? Really? You believe that? That sounds ridiculous. Wait a minute. You think that there was a God who spoke and things were created? That sounds ridiculous. And so there were these little pieces of doubt that end up crushing the foundation that some of our kids are standing on. So we wanted to take some time on Bible Reading Sunday to say, hey, can we trust the Word of God? I'm going to give you some data uh, that I believe is going to lead us into some foundational things that states, yeah, we can believe the Word of God. It's trustworthy and it's reliable. The next thing is, what do we do with the Word of God? How do we address it? Cindy uh, read 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, that talks about that. And we're going to kind of chew on that a little bit later. And then we're going to talk about how that applies to us individually and how we address that corporately. You ready? Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump in. Here we go. Uh, the first issue, and I, I love this, one of my professors uh, at, in college was a guy named Don Byerly. Don Byerly went on to start uh, Faith Search International. Uh, it's a ministry I really appreciate it, but really it takes the Bible, it takes his, uh, his profession, his degree in sciences, and brings them together in a way that says, actually, these aren't polar opposites, they go hand in hand, and here's how they do, and he just used facts and data <laughs> and, and proves it. I love it. And so uh, Don Byerly, uh, in one of his books, uh, we'll be quoting it throughout our time together, and, and uh, this is one of them. Uh, one of the quotes that he has. The test of truth is the known factual evidence. Uh, that's a key. Known factual evidence. Sometimes people will say, you believe in the Bible? That's antiquated. That's old. Uh, like, okay, so when did age become the factor uh, in, in identifying truth? If anything, age maybe leans into confirming truth more than anything else. But sometimes people will make that comment like, oh, that's, a, that's an old way of thinking. Well, it's either right or it's wrong. Like that, that, if it's wrong, then give me some evidence. But you can't use age as a way of disproving it. It doesn't work that way. And sometimes people will say things like, there are no absolutes. And it's like, well, are you absolutely sure? Because if you are, <laughs> you just proved there's an absolute. So I lean into that with respect to the scriptures because we have to look at facts. Um, sometimes we speak about faith in a way that communicates we don't know what we're talking about. In other words, I just trust it because I trust it because I, I heard it one time and I trust it. Well, that breaks down when you have people speaking into your ear saying that this isn't reliable. So we have to go to facts. And as a church... I'm just going to tell you, we're going to lean into those facts. We're going to make sure we understand those facts. We're going to talk about those facts, those data points that prove that our faith is trustworthy. So faith is not um, believing in something that doesn't have any proof or abilities. Actually, 
faith, <laughs> there, there should be proof in our faith. There should be facts. In other words, I know that I can sit in that chair that I was sitting in because I've sat in chairs like that before. Uh, there is proof that I can trust it. There is proof that I can trust the scriptures, that I can lean on them. And that's what we get at here. So let's look at some ancient writings. So here's the idea. Um, especially in the universities, they'll talk about these ancient writings as if it's just fact, it's just truth, um, and, and maybe so. But they, they, one, of the, one of the measurements, I should say, is how many copies of the original do they have? So the originals are referred to as autographs. So we don't have any autograph copies of ancient writings. So having copies of copies or having copies of the original is very helpful because we can look at those side by side and see if there are any discrepancies. We can also date it and see how long uh, since from the event to the writings it was. I mean, those, those have effects um, on, on the matter and if I could trust it. So we're looking at how many copies of the originals we have. So the Iliad, which no one disputes, we have 1,757 um, copies of the Iliad. That's a fair amount of ancient copies. That's pretty good. Uh, Plato's writings and his dialogues, those grouped together, we have 210. Mm, That's pretty good. Tacitus, in his writings, we have 33, again, Historically, we don't challenge those too often. But what about the New Testament? What do we have? We have 24,406 copies of the New Testament, 5,795 in Greek, which is the language primarily spoken in the New Testament. That's significant. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, he says it this way, there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. That's a, that's a big statement. Like, do you see the numbers there, <laughs> the difference? It's amazing. So we have all of those copies, but if the earliest copy we have is hundreds of years or even a thousand years or more after the fact, then that could bring us into some questions, right? I mean, we wouldn't be writing about the personal life of George Washington right now. Well, what would we know except for if we were to go back and read some of his manuals, if we could maybe go online and see what other, people's, other people have said about George Washington. But that's how we could do it today. They didn't have those options as easily accessible to them in ancient days. So let's see. Uh, let's take some time and look at this. The Iliad, the earliest copy. So from the original writing of Homer is 400 years. 400 years Difference. Well, a lot of things can happen in 400 years. How about um, Plato's writings? Well, we have 1,300 years. So from the time that Plato has the oldest copy that we have accessible to us is 1,300 years after the fact. Significant. How about uh, Tacitus? 800 years after the fact. So nobody questions these writings. That's the point of bringing these up. Nobody questions these writings, but you see the distance between them. Uh, Significant. F.F. Bruce goes on to say, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, 
their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. In other words, he's suggesting the only reason that it's ever questioned in academia is because it's religious writings. But that, just because it's religious writings, doesn't, isn't a value of truth or not truth, right? It, so, so that's the, the emphasis that F.F. F. Bruce is talking about. But there is another problem, and the other problem is discrepancy. So we have 24,000 copies, and more than that, more than 24,000. And these copies, if we were to put them side by side by side by side by side by side and read them, what would the discrepancy rate be? Because that, that could matter. I mean, maybe there was a, an editor who was reading, and there's this evolved theology, and they just wrote in, uh, Jesus is God, right? Um, that, that could affect everything. So let's look at it. Mahabharata, which is the Hindi uh, writing, 10%. So 10% discrepancy rate. One out of every 10 words, questionable. Was that there in the original? Mm-hmm. This copy says this, this copy says this, this copy says this. We don't know. 10%, that's big. The Iliad, 5%. So Homer's writings, 5%, every 20 words. Was it there? Wasn't it there? So the New Testament, 0.2%. That's big. 0.2%. But even 0.2% could, could matter. Like that, that really could matter. If, if the 0.2% are things like I identified, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, if those things were written in at a later date, then that, that 0.2% is a very big number. But it's not. In Greek, you can say things like um, uh, red truck. Uh, or in English, you can say red truck. It only makes sense to say red truck. In Greek, you could say truck red, red truck. It doesn't really matter. That is part of the discrepancy. There are a couple of lines that are in different places. In, so uh, different places in the text. Uh, that's another part of the discrepancy. But there is nothing in the text that addresses anything uh, theological in nature. In other words, we're not addressing the deity of Christ in that 0.2%. It's not addressing the virgin birth. It's not addressing uh, the miracles. It, like Those things are consistent throughout. Based on how, how we measure texts academically, the New Testament uh, is trustworthy. It's reliable. But there's another way that we look at this, and that's through a historical lens, and we can look at that through archaeology. So early on, even um, 100, 200 years ago, there were some questions. Like, for example, uh, names were used, and with those names, they said, well, I don't know that those names uh, were ever used in the Roman Empire. So somebody's making something up was the implication. Well, Let's look and see what some professors have said about this. Secular professor from, from Yale. If you know anybody who went to Yale, you can talk to them about this. But this is, <laughs> this is what it says. On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. In other words, the modern critics who are saying, 
Uh, we don't know if we can trust this. As they have dug in, they found actually the Bible is very trustworthy. Um, the more we look into it, the more we recognize, yeah, we can trust the Bible. His uh, assertion there, he could make a, 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 an even deeper case that there have been several atheists who have become uh, Christ followers because of archaeological finds. Continuing on, uh, William Albright says it this way, the excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. I want to suggest to you today that God has miraculously kept his word together for us to know, to know that we know that we know that we can trust it. I, it appears to me, even just with some internal uh, evidence, that the word of God is exactly what it claims to be, the word of God. Let us not forget the amazing consistency 66 books, over 40 authors, 1,500 years, and the fact that the main theme of creation, fall, and redemption remains while also promoting Jesus as the hero of history. It's consistent. Like you, you find, find uh, 66 books where the messages are, uh, are consistently the same, where they've had over 1,500 years to uh, disagree. <laughs> it doesn't happen but we see it uniquely in the scriptures. So what I am suggesting to you today, that despite our culture that perhaps is a foundation of, stand, uh, of sand and is shifting consistently, we can stand on a sure foundation and we're not going to go with the shifting sand. So let's look now at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, let's just kind of walk through it. Some things that you should know is that Paul, um, before, before he dies a martyr's death, he speaks in to some people who are coming up behind him. And one of those people is this man, Timothy. He spends a lot of time with Timothy. He does a lot of training with Timothy. Timothy uh, had some training from his grandmother and his mother. His father is never mentioned. We can imply some things there, but that, that's the best we could do. We wouldn't know for sure if it's true or not. We could just imply it. Uh, but what we do know is for sure is those who invested in him were grandma and mom. And they talked to him about his faith. And they built him up in the scriptures. And we're going to see that uh, from Paul's writing here, his message. Additionally, Timothy ends up being a leader in the early church. And this message is to him. And that's going to matter in just a moment. But what I would like you to do as you read it is to ask some questions of yourself. What does the Bible mean to me? Like, like really, what does the... And, and, and to be honest, is the Bible a... Um, is it a book that's on our shelves that we occasionally dust off and look at? Is it a book that when we have problems we go to? Or is it something that we're constantly engaged with? You know, um, often, I don't know if you all ever have this problem, I sometimes do. We'll be at the table and everyone's talking and I'm kind of looking down. Oh man, I got to check that message. Oh man, I, someone texted me. 
Oh, you know, like I, I do that. Does anybody else ever do that at the dinner table? Okay, thanks, guys. It's just me. I see. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but wouldn't it be cool if we all had this other problem where they're like, what are you looking at? Oh, man, I'm just looking at the scriptures right here. I just had a thought, and I just I have to connect it right now. Like, wouldn't it be good if we had that kind of engagement? Okay, that's a tangent. Sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 is where we're starting. And uh, remember that Paul is speaking to Timothy. He says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed Knowing from whom you learned it, he could be talking about grandma and mom, he could be talking about himself, but the point is that Timothy firmly believed this. He knew that he knew that he knew that this is true. He knew it. And the importance of us training our children, the generations behind us up in the Word, is invaluable. Like, like we can't put enough emphasis on this fact. It has a transformative power. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, um, how difficult it is. Cindy, I forgot to grab those two uh, resources. Would you grab those for me real quick? Thank you so much. Um, one of them, thank you, one of these uh, in, in uh, colonial America and following, they recognized that w- we were biblically illiterate and they wanted to teach. And so for the schools... For at least 150 years consistently, but some in some areas for 210 years, the New England primer was a part of what they used regularly. So it taught the ABCs. Tell me if you learned the ABCs this way. A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. Anybody ever learn the ABCs that way? Me neither. But for nearly 210 years, this was a part of regular education in America. Um, we've, we've, moved, we've moved to such a place that, um, let me suggest it this way, the school's not going to give us biblical education. And I would say uh, our kids are in church one day a week, maybe two days a week. They're getting some Bible education, but the onus of Scripture is for we as parents and grandparents to be proclaiming the Word of God to the generation behind us that is growing up. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment, verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, Did you get that? That the scripture, one of the things that the scripture does when we begin to read it, we start to see that, oh, wait a minute, God has a plan in this. Wait a minute, I'm a part of this plan. Wait a minute, God's best plan is for for me to experience salvation. Wait a minute, salvation is not just this one-time prayer that I said way back then, but I experience experience this salvation in day-to-day ways. That it's past, present, and future tense in many ways. It's past in that God has already taken care of it. It's present in that, that God is at, interacting with me in real time with respect to salvation. And it's future tense in, in the respect that one day, once and for all, sin and death is gone. We are completely, utterly saved. What a great day. And what a great day of rejoicing that'll be. Verse 16. 
All scripture is breathed out by God. Some of you, some of your uh, translations say God breathed. Um, both work. But I want you to think about that. God breathed. That's, that's the important piece there. God breathed. Did God do that anywhere else? Do you see that? Maybe in Genesis. Do you remember? With Adam, he breathed life into Adam. Uh, we learn from John chapter 1 that, that Jesus is the light who gives life to all. Like anybody who is created has life in them because Jesus put it in there. And we see that one of the ways that God put life into, uh, into people is he breathed it into them. And then we find out that the Bible is breathed by God. I think it is, it is, it is beyond an argument that, to say that the Bible exists for life. It's God-breathed. Like there is life here. So now some confessions before we get into this next part that uh, I've, I've struggled with how to share the Bible with my family at times. I have some great victories that I can tell you about. I can also tell you some times that I've, like, I've blown it. It is very easy for the Bible to become like this weapon that we wield against <laughs> our kids and grandkids. Like, you know what the Bible says? And what happens is in, in their minds, they start to see the Bible like my generation saw belts. You need me to get the belt out? No, I don't want the belt. I hate the belt. Uh, and we don't want to do that to our kids with the scriptures. So we're not just wielding it to, uh, you know, you messed up, bah! hit them in the head with it. But we're going to see in just a moment that there, there is this um, calibration that happens with the scriptures. And we're supposed to use it in a corrective way. So how might that look? And I, I want to encourage you to consider that as we begin to look. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So it's profitable, right? We're going to gain something. What are we gonna, well, one thing is in teaching. We're going to learn some stuff, some things that perhaps we didn't know. And we've already identified we can trust the Bible. It's accuracy. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Think about that. Training in righteousness. Reproof and correction. How does that look? Well, uh, there are several things. One of the things I love about the Bible is that most often it doesn't just say things like, don't steal. It also says, work. And work is good. And you should earn it. And don't steal it, earn it, and work, and work hard, right? I mean, the, the Bible teaches us not just not what to do, but also what to do. So don't do this, but do this. It's, it's complete. So let me make some, some suggestions, and I'll tell you uh, some victories. And in sharing some of these victories, uh, you may have, there may be a better way of doing it. That's okay. I'm just sharing with you mine just so that we can corporately, like, these might be some things that we can do. One of those things is reading the scriptures together. I've noticed that in our family, when we read the scriptures together, that it is really good. And dad doesn't have to break into Hebrew and Greek to train their, my kids in what it says. We'll say something like this. What do you think that says? Well, it says don't lie. Yeah. Right. Have you ever lied? Are you talking to me, Dad? <laughs> I'll, I'll let my sister go first. Um, you know, because we have a big family, so they'd like to do that sometimes, and um, I do too. So, uh, so, but we talk about it. 
And we like, that's an easy win. They didn't need me to pick it up and like, you lied. Whack. They don't need that. We don't need that. But it's a good way to use the word, like just let the word speak for itself. Um, I've been trained in a ministry called peacemakers. So peacemakers will, will um, focus on reconciliation and getting relationships right. And so one of the things that we'll do is just open up the scriptures and start reading it. And then the next person who talks after we're done reading is the one who loses or the one who wins. Here's an example. A lady came into my office uh, in a relationship that she was really frustrated with. And she was like, uh, and it was tense. And this, like, this isn't just one-time thing. This has been going on for years. And there was tension in this relationship. And she's like, Kenny, I just got to tell you, I'm confessing to you. And I have permission to say this, by the way, just so you know. I like, oh, I want to strangle her. And I said, well, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, but let's look at some scriptures together. We opened up the Bible. We went to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And she read, love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Uh, And then she goes on, and love never fails. And then she slams her Bible shut. And she looks at me. She's hoping I'll say something, but I know not to say anything. And I'm just just quiet. And she's looking at me. She's looking at me. She's looking at me. And she goes, I think God wants me to love her. And I said, well, that sounds like something the Spirit might say. Uh, What might that look like? And she goes, I know her love language is gifts. You know what? I'm not responsible for how she receives things, but I am responsible to love her, and I'm just going to do that. I'm, it was that easy on that day, and it was all the Word of God that did all of this without me having to pop, hit her in the head with it. So good. And training in righteousness that the man of God, I'm going to stop there because someone is probably thinking, oh yeah, the Bible's just for men. Nope. This is specifically to Timothy. So he's speaking to Timothy. So he's going to say that the man of God, because it's to Timothy. Principle, it's for everybody, right? It's for followers uh, uh, of Jesus. The man of God, the woman of God, the child of God. You can look at it a lot of different ways. Principle, the principle. But this is being spoken to Timothy. That's why it says that. Don't shut down when you read that. Look at the context a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, just trying to get ahead of that conversation for you. Verse 17 that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What are we saying? That the Bible addresses everything. Everything. At least in principle. Sometimes I, sometimes I don't understand. I don't understand why we would argue over things like, and this hasn't happened as far as I know here, so I think I'm safe in saying this. But as far as I know, we've never argued about the color of paint in the bathroom. Um, but churches have, and sillier things too. Like, why are we talking about this? When there are other conversations going on, I'll give you an example. Uh, right now in science, uh, in some science uh, veins, I guess we could say, they are wrestling with, should we take the DNA of one species of animal and the DNA of another species of animal and uh, turn them into a hybrid? You know who they're not asking? The church. You know who might have an answer to that? The church. Why? Because 
may be complete, equipped for every good work. These principles that cross-pollinate, are there reasons that we might want to do, not want to do that? Are there things that that might affect? Are there some unintended consequences that perhaps could happen? Do you think the Bible might speak to some of those things? Maybe not. Maybe it's not going to directly say, hey, don't splice DNA and join it together. But there are going to be some principles that we can understand from those scriptures that definitely, definitely, definitely apply. So church, uh, what do we do with this? If this is the word of God and it's reliable like it says it is, if it's good for us uh, to be complete, to be equipped for every good work, what do we do with it? I want to make some suggestions. Uh, first of all, I want to encourage you to read the, the four Gospels uh, between now and Easter. So Matt and I, I I'll say it this way. <laughs> Have you ever done the year reading, the year reading program? Anybody ever done that? I've done it like 25 times, and I've finished it maybe twice. Uh, and here's why. I get, you know, a few chapters behind or 70, and I'm just like, I'm not going to read that this weekend. That's not going to happen. So I guess I'm just done reading. Like, that's what happens in our heads. So we said, well, you know what? Let's make this uh, a little bit more focused. And so from now until Easter, uh, from the first until Easter, there's like 93 days, so there's a little bit of flex time in there. But we can read all of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels during that time. How cool to marinate in Jesus during that time as we anticipate the resurrection of Christ and this Easter celebration. How cool to do that. So we're going to do that. By the way, uh, I do have this. Uh, Someone gave me some instructions before I came up here. Um, So we have this on our website. You can go to our website. You can go to events and then featured, and you'll see this Bible reading program. We also have a few copies out there. We only have a few copies left, so we're asking families to, if you need a physical copy, and that's fine if you do, but only take one per family as opposed to uh, everyone get their own for right now. We'll have some more copies in the future. If you need more in your family, that's fine. Um, but right now, just take one per family if you need one. But we also have it on version. If you have the version app, you can go to uh, 90-Day Gospel Reading from the Bible Project and find it there and, and read it. You can invite some people. Invite me to it. I'd love to read it with you. That'd be cool. Um, then, then uh, let's see, where else we have it? Um, okay, and then there is a printout that you can, you can print yourself out. Um, so that's cool. Here's another one. Read scripture as a family at least once a week. I would strongly encourage you just at least once a week. I mean, you can do it every day if you want to. That's fine. But at least once a week to commit from now until Easter, let's read at least a chapter together. You don't have to, you don't have to go into it and break it all down and all that stuff into Greek or Hebrew or whatever. But, but just read a chapter and just see what happens. Just read a chapter together. And, and dads, I, I want to encourage you with something, and some of you I'm, I know are better than me at this, um, but this was one of my victories. Guys, like some big relational capital that I banked with this one, okay? So this is what it was. It was time to read. Uh, Cindy is used to going, okay, Kenny, are we going to do that now? It's this time, and are you going to do that? Like, so she would prod me a little bit, and I'm like, mm, okay. 
But what I did is I just owned it. And I said, okay, I'm just going to do this. So she wasn't waiting on me. And she goes, oh, Kenny, that was so sweet that you did that. That meant a lot to me. And I'm like, cha-ching. Put that in the bank. Because <laughs> I'm definitely going to be withdrawing more later. So, uh, guys, what I'm saying is own that if you can. Uh, make it happen. Be the, be the instigator of that and see what happens. It'll be really cool. Those are the things. We can trust the Word of God. And the Word of God has given us life and has a way for us to live uh, that is knowable and understandable because we serve a good God who loves us. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask the worship team to come as, as they're coming. I, I just want to give you maybe just a quiet moment to, to marinate in this moment to say, okay, God, uh, how might this look? Um, maybe like, when am I going to read these passages? When am I going to get, uh, uh, do this with my family? Am I going to have to Zoom some family members in? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to give you a quiet moment to do that as the worship team comes and leads us in this next song.